Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Red Med Podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine where we provide a platform for healthcare professionals working in or aspiring to join rescue, expedition and disaster response teams. A platform to share information, advice and opportunities and connect like-minded Red Med individuals in our community. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 32 of the Red Med podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine. Today, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Colin Smart from TSG Associates. Morning, Colin. How are you doing? Good morning, Chris. I'm very well. How are you? Very well, thanks. All set with a good coffee. Likewise. I have to say a long time no see, but we've been speaking a fair bit recently, so it's, it's nice to kind of continue the conversation a bit. Colin, we've, um, we've worked together on and off for, for a number of years now, and we've used your products, I've used your products in the deserts of Iraq, the mountains of the Andes, the jungles of Guatemala. Um, absolutely fantastic, robust products. But before we get into that, just to add a little bit of context for the listeners, can you give us a little bit of background as to your career and where you started and your interest in medicine, et cetera? Yeah, no, no thanks, Chris. And... Uh... I'd just like to say that thanks. Thank you very much for, for inviting me on. Uh, so a bit of a, a varied history uh, that I come from. At the moment, um, I'm, uh, I'm the founding partner of my company, company TSG Associates, and I'll be able to cover what we do a, a little bit late, later on. Um, but my sort of interest in uh, remote area medicine started as a military medic. Um, I, start, I joined the army when I was very young at 16, um, but I was very lucky um, to, to work with some of the most specialist units in, in the British Army and through my work with those units that I, I basically I was going to incredibly remote places with, yeah. with fairly large numbers of troops up between 60 and 80 um, and you can see I was lucky or unlucky enough I was the only medic on the ground and, and I think that's what's really fueled uh, my passion for, for remote area medicine 
Um, and I, I think in, in two ways as well. One, um, you, you do all your preparation for your trauma uh, and make sure you've obviously got that completely boxed away. But what also fascinated was uh, doing really good primary health care in, 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 in extreme environments. And that's something I think is a hugely important part for, for the remote medic. So I did, did nine years with the military. Um, I also had active service in the first Gulf War. Um, when I left the military, uh, I worked in the North Sea as, as a platform medic again. Again, maybe not as um, austere, but again, quite remote from one medic with virtually, and certainly in the days I was working out, there was no telemedicine. You know, you had a phone call link and uh, your hands to make your diagnosis. Uh, so there, there wasn't a lot of technology and support behind what we were doing. So it was, again, trying to have the skills so you could make safe decisions on, on, on what you were dealing with in, in difficult places at times. Yeah. Um, once I finished in the North Sea, um, I actually went off to uh, Coventry University to do a study degree in disaster engineering and management. Um, and that, that was a, a Bachelor of Science degree. Awesome. Uh, so, so that's really... I suppose my history outside of um, my history, I, I do love expeditions. I don't do quite as many as I'd like to at the moment. And uh, I suppose my biggest one to date is uh, traversing the, the Greenland ice cap unsupported, which was uh, a 25 day manhole across the ice cap, um, which, which, which was an incredibly successful and happy expedition as well. Um, and as we've talked about earlier, Chris, I think the ultimate endurance is that of two. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on that job. At the moment, so quite a lot of diversity, um, but um, I hope that I'm passionate about remote area medicine um, and, and experiencing the highs and lows that we all go through through, through that when, when, when we do it. Absolutely incredible! What an amazing career! Brilliant! Thank you for sharing that, Colin. It, it's funny you mentioned that. I was on the WEM podcast the other day, World Extreme Medicine talking about the, the facets, the different facets of remote medicine, the different competencies that require. And we quite often focus on wilderness medicine or trauma, emergency medicine. But most of the stuff we deal with is primary care or occasionally get a mass casualty incident. You need to look at things like triage or maybe your evacuation route is blocked by a landslide or a flood or a security problem. And you end up doing prolonged field care on site by yourself without telemedicine, without diagnostic equipment. So you, you need this whole host of clinical and non-clinical skills to be current, competent and confident or to be able to survive, thrive and operate in the environment. Um, but yeah, it sounds like you've got an incredible career and, and I see where the passion comes from. But following on from the polar stuff, remember the invite to Norway next year. Uh, you, you basically you, you've got me on the plane on that one, so I'm from there. <laughs> it doesn't doesn't take two invites, so uh, no, I'm very much looking forward to that, and and uh, you really appreciate the invite. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It'd be incredible to have your experience on board. We'll, uh, we'll test the kit as well. So excellent. I see, I see the background and the passion, and that often takes us. That of, that passion often creates entrepreneurs, because we see gaps in the capability, we see gaps in the market not so much to make money but to help patient care and improve practice and a lot of our products and services have been developed because of that so can you give us a little bit of background about tsg and where that where that was born how it developed and what your focus is as a company yeah and uh, you know I, I couldn't agree more um you, you you talk to various people who are running companies in in in, in this area and um 
I mean, ultimately, all companies have to make money to, to, to survive and pay the bills. But there's so many companies in this sector that are, that are driven to try and do the right thing and, and to try and get the edge to, to increase survivability. And, and really, that's what we're all about. Um, the, the origins of TSG are what, what we call the jungle story. I mean, and I literally was sat in, in Brunei on, on doing, doing a, a med cover for, for quite a difficult course. And um, in jungles, I'm sure a lot of your members have come across it, there is a thing called deadfall, where yeah. the tree canopy will probably die about halfway up. And obviously, if that crashes down in the middle of the night into a bivouac area, you, you've got a real complex incident in your hand. And I was sort of mulling over how I'd deal with that. And the conclusion I came to was I probably had enough switched on people around me that we could probably get through the situation and do an okay job. Yeah. But we never had any, anything formalized or, or any process that we could look at the planning and, and, and the execution of, or, or even prove that plan had a chance to withstand reality. It was always very ad hoc. So when I went out from the jungle after that trip, I, I basically said to myself, look, I've got to find something better because I'm in this position to do the job right and I don't believe I'm prepared for, for this type of event. And my risk assessment was telling me that this, this event absolutely can happen and has happened. So when I went out, I couldn't find anything to, to, to solve that problem. And, and that really is when I started literally sticking bits of paper together and trying to come up with solutions. So that, that was the initial spark. I never really, I've never been to business school. I've done lots of courses on it now, but I, initially the, the seed of the business was to try and solve a problem that I was going to be faced with. Um, so that's how we started. Um, we're about 25 years old now. Um, but basically what, what we try to do as a company, uh, we are a development company and the products that you'll see that, that we have are all our own developments and our own innovations. But we, we try to look to areas in, in the pre-hospital, often austere medicine area, that aren't serviced as good as they should be. Yeah. And we believe we could improve them. But what we can't do is just make something and say, we think it's better, we try and prove it's better as well. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously some objective ways we can do that, and, and there's some subjective ways we, we can yeah. do that as well. Uh, but it, we, we look at that gap, we innovate into that gap. Um, and if, if you look at then, what does a company try to do as a company? It's basically about we try to maximize survival Mm -hmm. And we try to minimize suffering. And if our products don't fit those two things, we're, we're, we're really not interested. Um, there's, there's nothing wrong with being a Me Too company, but we're all about being ahead of the curve, innovating, improving care, um, and as I say, improving survival, minimizing suffering. And, and that, that is the foundation of everything that you do. If you ever go on any of our websites or blogs you you see that reiterated in, in everything we talk about it's the major driver behind what we're, we're involved in fantastic interesting you, you highlighted a key word there or key phrase risk assessment the your whole approach to managing the situation is based on your risk assessment that's something we talk about almost on every episode you can't prepare unless you've done your risk assessment and you know what resources are available the risks associated to the people, the activity, the environment. So that, that's interesting that we think alike there. And it's, that's really key for any remote operation because if you haven't done your homework and you buy yourself with limited resources, it's going wrong. And, and you know, it's so important. And, and, and certainly if you were to talk to anybody coming in, to, trying to get into this area of medicine, 
if I was to give them any advice, is, is, is get your prep right. You know, if you go into a jungle, know your fevers, know what are prevalent, because if your diagnostics are minimal, then you're going to have to fall back on the knowledge you've got of what things are most likely to happen. Because you know yourself, things that are, that are most likely to happen, happen. So you've got a better chance of getting the right decision. And nine times out of 10, you get that right decision because you've done your research before it and, and you know what's the most likely thing you're going to be faced with within that specific environment. Um, so yeah, we, before you head out, research, research, research. Um, it's, it's so important given where you know, the places that we live to operate. I couldn't agree more. I, I focus quite a lot on, on the use of technology and taking technology to the field now whether it be telemedicine with satellite-based messaging systems, portable Wi-Fi systems, ultrasound, lightweight 12-lead ECGs. These are great complements to the clinical skills and give you an extra picture to make that evacuation decision. Do we evacuate a patient? Do we not? The ramifications of doing it, aside from being very expensive, there are clinical ramifications if you get it wrong. But also, if you decide to go on foot or by helicopter, you're potentially putting the team at risk going over remote terrain at night, river crossings, deadfall. So it's good if you can justify the decision, but you can't always rely on the technology. Batteries run out, batteries die because of the freezing temperatures, equipment gets damaged. So yeah, you're right. You need to fall back on the knowledge and specific to area knowledge, I think. But um, we, um, we first use your products, if we can dive straight into that. We first use your products. I think it was 2014, you first gave me a smart extract stretcher. And I, as like you, I bounce around tactical teams, close protection teams, um, wilderness expedition courses, operations. And I've trialed a multitude of different stretchers, all of which are either really heavy, really bulky, take up a lot of space in your rucksack or the entire rucksack, fill up the boot of your car. And I've never really found something that's fit for purpose until you sent me that package and we we trialed the smart extract stretcher which i'll let you describe it but in a nutshell it's small lightweight robust i've used it to extract people in the desert dragging it along the desert floor i've carried people down live volcanoes with it i've carried it in a pouch at high altitude at twenty-two thousand feet in the, the chilean andes it's just it's so small and lightweight, I can take it anywhere versus other stretchers that aren't as versatile and I wouldn't take anywhere because of the size and bulk. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the smart extract? Because I think that's the base of all of the other modular systems that you build on, right? Yeah, it's certainly one of the, the key brands. And you're right, the extract is the, is the core of the modular aspects of, of, of all the other things that it, it, it can hang off it, it, if you need it to. Um, the, the, the key to, I, I think, um, designing equipment for remote medics is that there's, there's two parts you need to think about. Is that it can be the best piece of kit in the world, but if the medic doesn't take it on the ground, it's not there, so it's not the best bit of kit in the world because it's just not there. And, and two words define if it will be there or not, size and weight. <laughs> so um, you, you, it's, whatever has to be designed has got to be acceptable that whoever's deploying can look at it and go, that it's an acceptable um, size and acceptable weight that I will put it in my kit and take it with me. So if you don't meet those criteria, it doesn't really matter what it does, it's not going. Yeah. So we've all, and obviously robustness comes in, into that as well. 
Uh, so we've always got to fulfill those criteria, no, no matter what we do. The, the extract's a really good example of where we tried, tried and hopefully succeeded in de innovate into improving survivability. And uh, the initial brief for this that we picked up on was uh, when the, the British Army first deployed to uh, the second Iraq war and Afghanistan, then very quickly we realized that the operational casualty profile was changing. We weren't dealing with uh, a Cold War type explosive ballistic type injury. It was very much IED explosive driven. Yeah. And the profile of that casualty was a double or a triple amputee. Absolutely. Now, the, the difference there is um, if you're taking a small lightweight stretcher into play, the, the anatomical size of the soldier or, or the operator who's been, been hit by the IED has changed. They've gone from an average six foot person to four foot two. Yep. So what we had to try and work out was create something small and lightweight enough. Um, and by the nature of that, it usually has to be flexible as well, because bringing a rigid system at that point, it's almost impossible to get it down to the, the really small size that, that we needed to do. So the, the brief really was to be able to take something, a point of wounding, um, and make it basically cocoon that casualty with the handles all in the right place to support the body parts, so that initial transportation from point of wounding to an, an area of safety, we, we would minimize movement. Um, what we were finding before extract came along is um, we would respond to the incidents, obviously understanding hemorrhaging is the, you know, being noted as the, the, the thing we can intervene the most in to prevent death. We would do a lot of work getting that primary clot organized, getting on tunicates or hemostats and everything working. Uh, but then if you pick somebody up who's been subjected to blast, we're now moving that limb around. We've got an unstable pelvis for creating secondary injuries, and we've taken that person to death. The idea with the extract, trying to design it so we could get it to point of injury, we're not always going to do it given the, the dynamics of where you're working, but where it was safe to do so you could. Yeah. And then you could minimize the movement from point of injury to, to a safe space. But the design of it, we cocoon around somebody who had the profile of an IED explosion. So it was driven by a need and we had to recognize, well, actually, if it's got to fit someone that size and we don't reduce it in length, everything's in the wrong place mm -hmm. and it won't work. And then you, if you don't get that right, you will get lots of secondary movement. Lots of secondary movement equals increased chance of death and it's certainly increased suffering. Yeah. Um, so we had to work out how to square that circle um, and get the size, weight and robustness correctly but make sure anatomically we could get the, 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 the length of it to reduce very simply as well. Because it's got to be intuitive, that's the other big thing. If it looks complicated, it is complicated. <laughs> so, um, it's not going to work, is it? It won't work when people are under pressure if it's complex. But if it's simple, think again and make it simpler. I mean, that's another big mantra that we go on. Uh, it can't be simple enough. So, so yeah, that, that was the, the thinking behind it. And, and once we'd got the basic extract, um, organized and, and I'm really pleased to see that the British Army picked up on it really quick and they now deploy that with one in four soldiers so it's 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 with it's down at team medic level at section level so it's always close to the point of wounding so it's actually being deployed where it's intended what we did after that was then we modulized it so you could start with a very small one you, you could apply a base to it which is detachable if you needed to drag more you could get a floating module, a hypothermia module on it, build a med kit around it. But you don't have to have all that. You can just 
lock on us and where required, again, depending on what your risk assessment is and, and where it is you're deploying. Brilliant. It's interesting you say that design based on the, um, the epidemiology, the changing epidemiology or the training, changing profile of trauma. I was looking to work as a volunteer in the combat support hospital in Baghdad from 2005 to 2007. And we were getting between 10 and 20 casualties a night with multiple amputations, exactly as you say, from the horizontally launched explosive form projectiles or IEDs. And guys were coming in with two, three, sometimes four amputations. And yeah, you really need to cocoon and protect the tourniquets and prevent the blood clots from blowing out and the pain and the additional, the secondary injuries and any pelvic movement. So yeah, absolutely. The, the product's designed to fit the purpose is really key. Is that a smart extract that you see behind you on the table? Yes, this, this is one nicely placed. <laughs> but um, as, uh, as you'll see, I mean, it weighs under a kilogram. Um, so it is very light. Um, it actually will take up to a ton. Now, patients don't weigh a ton, thankfully. Not, not, not most of them anyway. I've not come across one as a ton yet. <laughs> um, but it's incredibly, the, we actually designed a very specific material around it called Duralite to, to take the weight that it requires. So it's, got, it's incredibly strong. Uh, but yeah, when you look at it, and you, you can compress that more if you need to. But you, you're talking about a foot in length, maybe 30 centimetres in length. Yeah. Uh, it is a very small product. And uh, as, as all medics like, it's a very easy thing to stuff in your rucksack because it's, it's compressible. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and those things make a difference because it says, yes, I can take that. As opposed to if it, if it shrinks around the sharp corners, it's then, mm, well, maybe I can't because I can't get that compressed in and it's, it's taking space up that I, I don't have. Uh, so again, I, I, I suppose one of the, the, the things we do bring to the table, because we have been there and done it a lot of times, we know that these little things matter. That, you know, the ability to shove something and twist it around and make it fit, it's actually quite important. 100% couldn't agree more. And I've carried that just attached to my belt kit or on the outside of a rucksack, but quite often I take out the pouch and stuff it into the bottom of my rucksack and it really reduces the profile again, so you're more likely to carry it. You don't even notice it's there, to be honest. But yeah, yeah it's, it's understanding those little things that actually really matter when you've only got a limited capacity and you're prioritizing your kit. Um, you know, because anything that's slightly impractical is not going. Um, so again, that those are all the challenges that we, as designers, that, that we have to take on board. Fantastic. So I mean, it was originally designed for that in mind, but it perfectly suitable for a full-length casualty with all of their externalities in place, right? For any yeah, rescue yeah. situation. Yeah, absolutely, and it's been used like that many, many times. And the other thing that is quite nice about it is that you can put paediatrics in it. I mean, not neonates, but you know, you're looking at your 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 maybe two to three year old will easily fit inside it as well. So if you need something just to bundle um, a paediatric, or you walk into something like a disaster zone, you've got something that will fit all of the population. So I think that's quite important as well. Brilliant, fantastic. Well, I, I know the videos are available on the TSG Associates website, and we'll give the link later on. It'll also be on on our website on the RedMed and the SOS page. <laughs> But um, so there's videos on there showing it in a tactical situation, a military situation used by the police, the speed of deployment, it's packaging, it's, it's just incredible. But um, exploring the, the tactical and the wilderness side of it, as a 
certified tactical paramedic and TCCC instructor and a fellow of the Wilderness Medical Society, I often have to teach hypothermia prevention and management, whether it be accidental hypothermia in extreme cold environments or trauma-induced hypothermia. It, it's a real focus in both of those spheres at the moment, which translates across well to rescue, expedition and disaster. Um, so we've looked on the military side. There's lots of commercial products that in the past have tried to mitigate hypothermia. And in the wilderness side, we always create the, um, the hypothermia wrap or the burrito de hypothermia with whatever's available in your rucksack to try and improvise, which is great if guys have got the equipment to improvise. Um, but I understand based on raw research and, and based on a gap in all of these products, TSG have developed a hypothermia prevention and management system, which is modular with the smart extract stretcher. That's the yeah, heat saver. Yeah, the, heat, the extract uh, heat saver. Yeah, yes, we have, and it's um, this this it's been quite a journey to uh, to get this one, you know, research correctly, then developed correctly, and again achieving size and weight. Um, it's a really fascinating area, um, hypothermia management. Um, again, it was another area that, that we were looking at and, and we questioned if the incumbent products were good enough. Um, you know, and, and you know, sometimes you've got to go back to the simplest analogies to, to question why they're good enough. So if I take my kids camping, which, which I do like to do, um, and it's on a summer's night and it's a beautiful evening, I'm not going to give them a silver blanket to sleep under. I'm going to give them an adequate level of insulation something underneath them, something on top of them that, that's going to keep them properly warm through the night. So on a perfect summer's evening with two completely uninjured people, I'm going to work out what insulation is required. Um, and because we're often walking up the hills with the kids, I still don't have a lot of space, but I'm going to take that insulation with me. At no point am, am I ever selecting a foil system to say that's going to be okay for my kids to sleep in. Yeah. So. If I'm making that assessment for perfectly healthy people on a fairly warm night, what I started to question is why are we putting foil systems or systems with no insulation on people and saying that's hypothermia mitigation and treatment on people who are seriously injured, who we know due to serious injury are losing their natural mechanism to produce heat. And I said, that just doesn't add up. Yeah. You know, I wander across Greenland where every ounce of equipment is calculated to minimize what I'm dragging on, on my two pokes behind me. But three quarters of my... It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Second, oh, my sledge. 
is my sleeping system because I need that level of insulation. To, I've worked out that I cannot reduce that level of insulation in the environment I'm working in. At no point am I saying, well, this magic silver blankets, they'll work. So people pick, you need insulation at all levels uh, and, and, and I think very importantly to combat all areas of heat loss. Um, and when we looked at what was out there um, and what seems to be quite standardized in the industry, I, I was thinking, hmm, that, that doesn't really concept for me. But we did have to prove it. So we found a few things and we did a few things. Um, the first thing we found was most of the, the systems out there at the moment don't combat all forms of heat loss. Um, they'll, they'll usually give you a type of blanket that goes over someone or works as some sort of sleeping bag system. So they'll combat convection heat loss. Um, they'll talk about combating and, and reflecting radiated heat loss, but I think this is really important that injured people don't radiate heat because injured people are compensating and pulling their blood and sure. cold, clammy skin doesn't radiate anything. Yeah. Yeah. So radiation heat loss in the injured person is not, so, we're not never gonna be able to reflect stuff back even if we can. Um, so we've got conduct, so we've got convection, uh, we've got evaporation, which I think is something we have to consider, but hugely and massive gap in this area is conduction heat loss to the ground. Yes. Um, and again, go back to simple things and simple analogies and why is it important. You look like a homeless person in the street and what is the first thing they look to have? They will sit on a piece of cardboard because they understand is that if they don't do that, they will get But as standard, we do not have, most simple systems I looked at as standard do not put something underneath them, someone. They say you should, but it's a lottery whatever turns up. Um, and we said that's not right as well. The most we should standardize our ability to combat conduction heat loss. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the complementary to that, it's a lot more comfortable for a casualty as well, because, you know, comfortable casualties are easier to deal with as well. You know, I think we've got a duty of care that we take a really bad day and we incrementally start to make it better. Um, so let's put them in something nice, which feels good. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds a simple thing, but that's basic human care, isn't it? Which is important. So, so, so that there was a question and does the incumbent work? And those analogies of, would I give that to a child sleeping on a summer's night? Um, are the systems combating all forms of heat loss? And we, we had a big question mark on that one. So all good and well to say, we think it doesn't work. What we had to do is try and work out if it didn't work. Um, so what we decided to do was try and run a series or, or, or certainly run an, an experiment and, and publish the findings uh, to, to try and evaluate that. So when you look at, again, a lot of the literature at the moment, there's very little literature looking at humans being cold and, and rewarming, which is obviously gold standard. Um, there's quite a few models that, that look at taking sort of almost bottles of water, putting them into heating systems and watching cool and heat up and seeing if they retain heat. And there's some pig models as well out there. Um, we, we wanted the gold standard because I think if you can look at a human being in a hypothermic state, then work how systems work or don't work, that, that's what you should go for. So long story short, we've got some willing volunteers. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know how I quite couch this to, I sort of said, would you like to come and do this for no pay at all and go hypothermic for me? And we actually got quite a few people saying yes. <laughs> so, 
I'm not sure. Uh, maybe I said it in a strange Scottish accent. They didn't understand. But um, we we got uh, I think seven or eight volunteers. I actually put myself through this one as well. Um, we took them into a high fidelity training Arctic training room, which was working between minus two and minus four. Okay. Um, we brought a very high medical faculty to oversee what we were doing. Yeah. Not only from a safety point of view and uh, a clinical accuracy, we wanted it to be as independent as possible as well. Because, you know, if we're going to say this works and this doesn't, it can't just be me doing that. That's, that, that's not fair. Yeah. So we had a very high level faculty working with us, uh, both from a medical point of view and a university point of view as well. Um, and we took people down to 35 degree centigrade core. So we got them clinically hypothermic working at minus four, then we put in into series of um, rewarming systems. We used a foil system. Uh, we used uh, a sort of wind roof, roof system that's used in a, one of the more prevalent ones used in America. Mm-hmm. And we used our experimental system. Um, we did core temperatures over a two hour period. Uh, we put thermal camera, cameras on them um, to, uh, to see where the heat was escaping, which was fascinating. Thermal cameras just don't lie. If, if that heat's not being retained, it will tell you because it glows. Uh, um, but every bit of glow on an existing system means that heat is not being retained for that casualty. Mm-hmm. Um, we did comfort scores as well. You know, say, how do you feel in the system? One was incredibly uncomfortable and, and 10 was a feel, a feel novel. Um, and the other one which was interesting was... Um, we, we brought a specialist in polar medicine in to, to work in Arctic gloves to see if they could do chest examinations, cub, cubicle fossa, uh, and tunica checks as well. And seeing if there's any heat loss as you open things up, but we also checked functionality as well. Because all good and well being a wonderful piece of kit, but if you can't do your medical stuff on it, it's, it's a waste of time, isn't it? So you um, get access to the interventions whilst the casualty is protected and wrapped up. Yeah, yeah. So we had to make sure with certainly the system we were developing, and that if we needed to do those three checks, that and they're not not these are the only ones. These are the the ones that were chosen by the expert that we brought in. Is that you could actually still access your casualty mm-hmm. um, because you know yourself that's important. If it's a tough environment and it's slightly difficult to access your casualty, you tend to go towards the easier jobs, don't you? So we've got to make it as simple as possible still to access your casualty. Um, so that was one of the things we worked on. How functional is this when, you know, one of the toughest tests for any functionality is wearing mitts. Um, so we had somebody at minus four wearing mitts doing clinical examinations. Um, I suppose the bottom line, what we found is that the predominant systems in the market, the foils and the, the most that they were just the windproof materials that, that were being used, just yeah. weren't working. Um, we, we got, and if anybody would like to look at the data more, we, we can run a presentation on this. Um, what we found is with the system that we had designed, the heat saver, uh, we had a mattress underneath you. Uh, we, we targeted fibers around the core of the body because we were looking at survivability more than overall comfort. So we had more fibers around the core than we did on the legs. Uh, we had a windproof system. And we also played around a, a little bit with that defeating as well, which was quite interesting. Uh, but what we were doing was basically looking at all forms of, of heat loss, combating them, and then engineering the equipment so it became micro-sized. Um, just if people would like, the size of the equipment we came down to was this. Really? So you can see it's, um, if I was to compare that against an extract, um, 
we, we have a system that produced very significant good clinical results on rewarming people as, as opposed to the incumbent at the moment. Um, so, so yeah, that, that was the story behind it. A lot of research, the best part of two years, um, big clinical oversight. We just finished writing up the, the academic paper on it that we'll put forward to publishing in, in the next couple of weeks. Um, but again, if you go on our site, there are various interviews with me looking at the data and discussing the data. And if anybody would like more information on, on, on the, the actual results that we've got, that, that you know, more than welcome to, to, to present that. But it is fascinating. Um, it's probably worth talking. We also found, obviously, if you're dealing with an injured person, you probably were going to have to generate active heat. Mm -hmm. Because we've lost that internal capability to generate our own heat. We found that heat cells were very suspect in the cold. When we first took them in, they heated up very, very slowly. Um, and given some of the evacuation times we wanted to, to work on, they were just too slow. And the only way we got working was to have them open for about 40 to 50 minutes in ambient temperature and then bring them in. Uh, we also found instead of putting a whole blanket over someone, we found if we concentrated the heat cells around, wrapped them around the abdomen, under the kidneys and under the axilla, we, we got good results. So we, we could carry less heat cells. Yeah. So again, space and weight, yeah. but we got a better result. And I think the key to we found is if you ever have to, if you've got minimal insulation, pack it around the core of the body because that's the bit you want to survive and that's the bit you want to preserve at a proper temperature um you know so the more insulation you get around the core the better results you're going to get and, and that, that's a major finding so even if you don't have all this lovely kit we've designed if you've got minimum kit in a team focus on the core of the body and, and really focus on getting something underneath someone as well you know get them off that ground and get them well insulated with whatever you've got but do that quickly as well because the best heat is the casualty heat, you know, to regenerate it is, is difficult and hugely energy intensive for the injured person. Absolutely fantastic, Colin. I'm so passionate about this. And there are so many courses that look at treating the injuries and then evacuating the patient without actually mitigating hypothermia, which accidental hypothermia is a challenge in itself. But trauma-induced hypothermia leading into the lethal triad of acidosis, hypothermia and coagulopathy is is really the fight of losing battle in remote areas with limited resources, unless you can prevent it rather than treat it. So, you know, I think we've got that right. The, the prevention, you know, we, and one of the things we've tried to focus on is getting that as close as point of wounding as possible. Yeah. Um, but again, just so, so important the lethal triad is, um, you know, we focus so much time on um, stopping life threatening bleeds. But we know if we get cold, we don't clot. Yeah. So yeah. you can you've got to have you've got to have good good wound management, but you've also got to have prevention of hypothermia because you can't have one without the other. Yeah. yeah. Because you undo all the work that you're doing if if you don't do it. So you know, so yeah. And when we when we teach the hypothermia wrap in wilderness medicine, it's so resource intensive, you know. We do cover the core concepts. We prevent the heat loss through conduction using roll mats or camping mats. We get this, the casualty in two or three sleeping bags. We wrap them in a, a tarp or a nylon or the outer skin of the tent, which works great to mitigate hypothermia. If you're using that platform while you assess the patient or while you coordinate evacuation. But if you don't have all of that equipment, 
then you're back to square one. Or once you wrap the patient up in a rope to then use that hypothermia wrap as an extraction platform, you've then got no access to the patient. So it's, you have to undo all of the knots, which takes time, then exposes the patient to the elements again. And it, it goes around in circles. So it sounds like the heat saver addresses all of these, prevents heat loss through conduction, evaporation, um, radiation, etc. And you've still got access to the patient and you can still use it as a carry platform. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think anything that's small and lightweight, there's always bits of compromise on it. So you've got to understand this, you know, you know, we can give you a massive system which will cover everything. So there's, there's always tiny compromises with anything that's small and lightweight, but it will address the key areas of, of heat loss, which is what we're after, you know, get... I mean, we, there is no compromise with what we put on. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. The, the, the insulate mattress that we've designed is, is absolutely brilliant. You know, it just works. And from a comfort level, from a size level, uh, from an insulation level, it works really well. Um, the, the heat's... You know, put the heat seal on, covers your, your core, and then we get you covered from, from the weather with the, the element sheet. The other area I think is really important and it's really simple is absorbing of fluids because injured people create fluids everywhere, don't they? They just do. Uh, and carrying something as simple as an incontinence pad. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of Gucci and um, commercial things you can get fluid absorbency, but a few incontinence pads, if you expect there's going to be prolonged field care, and, and you need, and you do not want your patient laid in fluid, which we know will rip the the, te- the, the, the heat out of them and be incredibly uncomfortable. Then just taking some incontinence pads to get, so we soak up underneath them and throw an, another new one in. It's low tech, it's not expensive, but it could make a big difference in, in keeping core body temperature right. That's a really good point. I think what, once we start to get into applying critical care into prolonged field care, if you've got access to a a Foley catheter, that's all well and good, but not everybody has that or is able to do that intervention. And cold, wet clothing really just compounds heat loss, doesn't it? So, yeah, that's a really great idea. Packing the pads around the patient to absorb the liquids, even if it's just the sweat from diaphoretic skin, that's a great point. Anything you can do to, to absorb the moisture and protect from the environment, from the, the wind and the rain, etc., is really going to help. Fantastic. So it sounds like the TCCC guidelines changed. I say it sounds like I know the TCCC guidelines changed last year to add an emphasis or a focus on the addition of insulation into any of the hypothermia prevention kits. 
And that can be literally just packing clothing around the patient, underneath the patient. But eventually the users are going to need to use that clothing. The, the soldiers, the buddies, the rescue team are going to need to use that clothing or their rucksacks as part of the mission. But your, your product encompasses all of this. Are you able to show us the equipment? Have you got the equipment? Yes, to a quick... yes, 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 absolutely. I can, I can, I can whisk you across and uh, yeah. give you a, a quick five-minute demo if, if that would work for you. Absolutely. Um, so uh, let, let, me, uh, let me take you across. Just, just before I do that, so uh, th this is the piece of kit we'll, we'll be talking about, the, the Extract SR Heat Saver. So I'll, I've, we've got a little demonstration across here. Let me, uh, let me take that across. Oh, we're getting technical now, Col. <laughs> Which for someone like me is a bit scary, so I'll just try and bring my head into this. And there we go. So, so it's been a fascinating design project. This one. Uh, the first thing we needed to do was was make sure every piece of the kit you got is functional. I mean, it, kit's only as strong as as the weakest link, and and sometimes you can get into kit because it's packaged incorrectly. Um, now the nice thing about the packaging here is that it's very, very compressible, so we can actually get a lot of insulation in place inside here, uh, but if you can really compress it, it makes it a really small piece of kit outside, but you still have to get into it. So the first thing you'll notice on this one is it's got very, very large buckles, which allow us to put a high level of compression in place, but if you're wearing large gloves or mitts or, or your hands are just cold, we're not trying to thread anything through an eye of a needle. It's a very, very simple ability to get into the kit. Now, when you get into this equipment, the next thing you'll find is that it's very organized. Because there's multiple components, uh, what you don't want, especially in a remote area where life's tough enough, everything just become disorganized. So you have a one, two, and a three, which is the sequence. But even before we do that, and uh, I'm sure anybody who's worked in the Arctic will profess to this, if you put anything down and you don't peg it down, you don't have it anymore because the wind takes it yep. very quickly many miles away. And if, that, if that's your tent, the next thing that happens is you're going to die because you've got no shelter. So it doesn't matter, it doesn't change with your hypothermia equipment. What we've got in this system is a couple of tent pegs held, held inside here and you've also got grommet holes. So what you do is you take the tent pegs and you basically take this and you peg it into the ground. So if, you, if you're working at any wind at all, you're not going to lose your equipment. And it sounds so simple, but when you go to use it and it's blown away, it's no good to you. And, yeah. and that, that's the little things about working remote. It's that level of detail that either means success or failure of what you're doing. You know yourself, Mother Nature's brutal, isn't she? if you don't actually really respect her. Um, so respect what you can do to your kit. One podcast the other day, it really comes down to the micro details. The, the equipment could slide down the glacier into a crevasse or, as you say, get blown away. And it's attention yeah. to your own kit, then yourself, then other people. And brilliant. I like it. I like it. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. And I think you've probably nailed that. What, what, what makes a really good remote area medic? Detail. Yeah. Detail, 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 detail in the research, detail in how we pack our equipment, detail in how we function, because we're always functioning on the edge, aren't we? We're not working in perfect places. And the more detail you have specific to your 
requirements, the better you're going to be. Yeah, this enables the old survive to thrive and operate and look after other people. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, I think it's respect in their environment. If you disrespect their environment you go into, the environment will beat you up. Yeah. If you really respect it and work with it, then you, you're going to get you're going to get some payback. Um, but the, the moment you disrespect it, it's, it'll it'll get you. <laughs> so I think that's the thing I learned most crossing Greenland. If I switched off for a minute, it got me. Um, yeah, it was that acute. It was that acute. You never could switch off. You know, I go to sleep for one night without really thinking about it, and, I, and my glove is underneath my sleeping mat. Well, I've got a frozen glove in the morning. And yeah. that's actually quite serious. Um, it's brutal. So remote medics, detail, detail, detail. And uh, design is the same as well. Yeah. And I like the, the simplicity of the one, two, three stepwise process. Great for disaster management where you're trying to bring order to the chaos. Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, anybody who's seen our LinkedIn page lately, well, we, we were talking about some of the tests that we do. But one of the tests we do with our instructions is to always get a child to look at the instructions first and then apply the equipment to see if the instructions actually work. Um, so the last, I, my daughter's 10 now, so she was testing them last year as a nine-year-old. And you just watch how they function. And like the simplest things, we had to put a label on this saying this side up because you put it on upside down. And I thought, I thought about that. And not, okay, it, would it make too much of a difference, but it wouldn't be optimum function. So it's the, it's the detail and, and it's trying to work out why am I doing this and why is this on here and what's the outcome? It's a great um, point. Often as medics, we're subjected to the same environment or the same environment as the patient. So we might be hypothermic or on the border of being hypothermic, we might be hypoglycemic. And so we're still suffering the same impacts from the environment. I think, Mistakes are easy to make if, the, if systems are not simple. Yeah, and you know, you're right, because when you're tired and you might be a bit hypo or hypoglycemic yourself, you don't do things that are difficult, do you? Because, yeah. you, you, you know, you're, you're fighting against it. You, you can, you, 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 we can't make life easy enough for you, so that, that's what we're trying to do here. So, uh, but the key to this, number one, is the insulating mat, and this is what we call the the, the, the extract insulate. Um, it's, we keep it very small because the pattern is made on the shape of the body, so there's no spare material. Um, again, there's simple designs on this. Um, when you're looking at the one way, you're looking at the valve you blow up, we use a Boston valve, uh, big gnarly tops to it, one way, so I don't even have to replace the top, um, and you know, can use any pump, and obviously, we, we suggest you do it manual so you don't have to carry a pump. But you don't want to use lots of breaths as well. We, we can get this in about four and a half breaths. Um, the Royal Marines said they could do it in three. And uh, so there's a competition if anybody can do it less. So I'll do, hopefully I'll do it in four. So I'll give it a go. And you can see from that, if you look at the, the way it's formed, we've, we've created a pillow at the top because patient patient comfort is you want something for your head to lie on, but this also allows the head naturally to lie in a bit more neutral position anyway, so we've got good patient positioning. And then what's the best insulator? Air. Air's a great insulator. So we've got very small cells to, to maximize the use of the air in it. 
But we've also got little crevices. So if, if a patient does bleed into it, the fluid pulls in those crevices. So they're slightly above the fluid as well. So it doesn't take it away 100%, but we're minimizing it. You then put an incontinence pad on that, and you've taken away a lot of the problems through, um, through, um, through evaporation process. The idea of this, I've got the extract laid out here. You can sit this in an extract. It can work independently. So immediately you've got your, 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 uh, um, your protection from the ground and your conduction uh, protection. You then need a casualty. This is one I found lying around, so we'll pop them in. Um, we all patients for that light. Yeah, we got. Originally, we're all this light and uh, and uh, and, it's, and it's easy to work with. But you can see now the patient is, is off the ground. Now, the next bit and probably the the bit we spend most time on is how are we going to insulate this patient within a size um, criteria that's acceptable for people to carry. You know, if we've got full length sleeping bag, that that's fantastic. Um, but the other problem we find with a lot of the incumbent systems is that they're almost sleeping bag designed and you cannot get injured people inside a sleeping bag. Um, you, I mean, anybody who's treated anybody with a broken pelvis, yeah. the, minimum, the amount of movement we can do is so minimal, yeah. we cannot slide something up their legs. So if you're looking for functionality, it's got to be placed on the patient. So what we designed was number two in the system, the heat seal. Now, again, if you look at the packaging, there's loads of space in here. This just packs in like you would do a sleeping bag. It, it's shoved in. It doesn't have to be folded in any way. So when I pull that out, it's not difficult. Now, the clever part to this system, and it is slightly difficult to show over this the, the web, but if you look at this line here, um, Everything above this line has got five layers of, um, of, of insulation. So it's very thick insulation. And, and everything below this layer has got two layers um, of synthetic insulation. We've used synthetics more than down. So if it does get wet, it's still got a reasonable retention of heat in, in, yeah. when it's wet. Because we must accept there is going to be some moisture buildup, um, but for all sorts of reasons. But what we've done is to get the size is that all the the majority of the fibers are packed around the core and, and that is the the i suppose the step we've taken to not create something for four season sleeping bag size but to get it down really small we've concentrated to keep the heat at the core yes. basically place step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus so you can see what i've done here i haven't moved my casualty i've just placed it on them these tuck under to get under around the kidneys. Mm -hmm. Now, what we'd also recommend is that you get some active heat around the core. Uh, that could be heat cells, that could be a hot water bottle, that could be a camelback that has got some water in it. Uh, get it under the axilla, possibly in the groin. Anywhere we can get access to blood, 
um, blood vessels that are close to the skin sure. or organs put on there. We had, a real, I had an interesting conversation with our medical director, Dr. John Hall, and we were talking about the core. And, and he said to me, you know, and I said, well, let's just place it on the top of the body. He says, why are you putting it on the ribcage? I went, well, that's the core, isn't it? He says, well, well you're only going to heat muscle and uh, bone up. So what's that going to do? Because you're not going to transfer any heat through the ribcage to where we need it. Interesting. We want to get it. For survivability, we want to get it into the core organs, don't we? Yeah. And get the blood flow. So heating up into cost, you know, into cost the muscle and rib cage. We're not, we're not going to get much clinically from that. It's a good point. Close to as vessels as possible. Get it close to the vessels. You know, think in space. If we can get pack things around the abdomen, under the axilla, in the groin, that's where we're the close to the vessels on the organs. Get it around the kidneys. So we're maximising the transfer of that heat into the critical areas for survival. Because it's all about keeping core temperature, isn't it? Yeah. For survival. We can, we can increase comfort later, but at the moment we're in survival at the moment. Absolutely. This is placed on a casualty. Recommended that you use whatever active heating that, that you've got. Um, simple things like it comes up over the neck here. So we stop the heat escaping from the neck. And the head's important. Um, and there's no point putting a hood over the head because you've got to put the neck's in deflection if you create a hood. We've just got a big wrap here. And remember, there's no point having insulating fibers underneath someone because they just get compressed. So you're carrying fibers for no reason at all. Little red tab here and a red tab here. All we do here is that we wrap it around the head, massive lump of Velcro here, and slap it on. So you basically wrap the head with five layers of insulation, clip it together, adjust. Probably one of my favorite design parts of this is if you now look at the head, anybody who's been outdoors knows that's in a good place now. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But you can, you can do it with big gloves. There's no, there's no fine motor skills required. With this, because they're going to extract, it can work independently. Extract just pulls it all together. It's extra long so we can wrap the feet from a, from a pure comfort point of view, to be honest. Um, we just pull it together. Remember, we talked about reducing the extract. This is the reduction cost that we have. Now, it's also important that we, we, we minimize the compression of the fibers because remember, we want air in the fibers to maximize it. So, extract is pretty good at not compressing fibers, but we're just good. So now what you can see is that we've create, we're creating a microclimate inside here. So we've got protection underneath, under here. We've got good air insulation here. We're, we're minimizing the space that can get in. But the majority of the insulation is from here to here. So when I flip this chap over, you can imagine yourself out on an expedition now or doing a rescue. This is probably a better scenario for your casualty than, than some of the incumbents at, at the moment. Uh, there's one more bit to go on in um, if you've got inclement weather, but what we can do from a patient access point of view is I can still get into my patient. I can, I'm not having to take anything off to do that. So it's still minimal 
exposure because you get quite good access in. If I do have to take it off, it's very quick to put back on again. I don't have to slide off like a sleeping bag to get back in again. That's a really good point when we talk about prolonged evacuations and prolonged field care, where the requirement to constantly monitor interventions and vital signs and look for trends and respond to those changes. I think it's it's fantastic. You can get access from top to toe. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, uh, I mean, we've traveled this bit minus two, minus four. If you're working in a more arctic environment, um, then you just pack some more fibers on. Mm -hmm. uh, so if it's a spare jacket in the team, focus it on the core. Right. You know, so you, you can complement it depending on the on the, the climate that you want. So this I would think is good for sort of cold temperate. If you were going more Arctic, you make you you know as as you would a sleeping bag, you would take a bigger bag. So you could, you can you should complement it with more fibres depending on the environment that yeah. you're working in. Um, the last stage, number three, which is a relevant protection sheet. You know, convection heat loss is huge in our environments, and all this is is a very big rucksack cover. Um, goes over the top of the extract and then it's elasticated around the bottom. So if you look down what you've got is you've got the, the key to this it doesn't have to be very thick and it doesn't have to be hugely technical fa fa fabric because it's loose and it was shed because you know yourself when you wear your waterproofs the, 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 the moisture wicks in at the tight areas. So we kept this very loose. So if it's spin drift or slow or rain, it will just it will just wick it off really easy. Absolutely fantastic. So we've got we've got the conduction, the conductive heat loss mitigated through the inflatable mattress. Then we've got the, the insulation added with a, a breathable waterproof windproof core or exterior, sorry. That's absolutely fantastic. So you're covering conduction, evaporation, radiation, and convection all in one. And comfort as well, which, which is always good. Yeah. Um, accessibility, you've got access to the chest with a flap here. Um, and you've got also two ways that, so I only have to open little bits to, to get into them as well. So it's, or it's all elasticated, I can get as well. Um, but, the secret is that we got it to that size. So it, it's as acceptable as, as we can make it from a size and weight point of view, um, you know, with, with good clinical results. Um, obviously, size and weight always have some level of compromise, but we, we think we've got that compromise just about right to, to give you a, a very functional system. Um, I'll, I'll whiz back to the seat and uh, if that's okay. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. get comfortable and get the coffee on. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that's our heat saver. Um, Thank you so much for the demonstration. A picture paints a thousand words. And anybody that's listening to the podcast, uh, this video will also be on YouTube and on the, the TSG, the Red Med and the SOS websites. But I was just taking some notes while you were talking about it there. I can think of probably a hundred times where I've demoed the, the improvised hypothermia wrap on the side of a mountain. And it, it's a brilliant concept because it, 
it mitigates conduction, evaporation, convection, radiation. It gets people comfortable on the roll mats in the sleeping bags. You've also got a carry platform. And in the absence of anything else, it's a great idea. You know, as wilderness medics, we need to be able to improvise and adapt and, and use what's around us. But sometimes we don't have the equipment because it's too big and bulky. Um, and also, I've just taken notes here. By using the TSG heat saver, not only are you more likely to take it because it's got a small pack size and it's nice and light, but it also allows the participants to keep their own clothing in their own sleeping bags. And if they have to do prolonged field care or they have to protect themselves while an evacuation is being coordinated, they're going to be comfortable. They can insulate themselves from the ground and from the environment and keep their own clothes and hats and, and use the rope for other things. So absolutely incredible. I, I love the way that the fine attention to detail. How long has that taken you to develop? About probably two years this one took us. Yeah, so um, it took a while. Um, a of and, and most of it was uh, the, the experiment and, and the detail. Uh, but I think you're right. I mean, the other thing, I suppose, to, to pull anything out from, from what we've learned is that the, some things in hypothermia are, are critical for remotes. And, and sometimes, best will in the world, you won't have the, the perfect kit, but get something underneath someone. You, yeah. you, you must have that and get that as early as possible. Um, here is your best insulator, so what can you blow up to get underneath them? Because fibers will always compress. If you've got minimum insulation, focus on the core, uh, which was really important. Obviously, weather protection is important, but think about how you can generate heat. Um, you know, you, you know, heat cells by the nature are quite heavy and bulky, but if you're carrying a flask, and you can put that into a camelback you're carrying or a water bottle and you can lay that in the abdomen, you have active heat. And as that's cooling down, you can be setting the stove up to reheat it again, to reheat more water, yeah. which is making the brew for your team, who you've got to take care of anyway, but then you're replacing your active heat. And now that's not technical, but some now you've got something underneath them, you've got some form of air underneath them, you've got non-technical active heat working in the critical areas, uh, you know where we can access the organs and, and the blood and okay, if it's not an element protection sheet can you get your tent up or can you get an emergency bothy going so you you know th those are the thing those are the concepts that will work um you know if you don't obviously life's easier with a perfect kit but concepts are what what we take with us all the time aren't they so uh, yeah that, those are the things we learned yeah yeah you have to think about it yeah, and I, I certainly learned a lot in active eating. Um, you know, unlikely I would take, you know, bespoke systems with me if I was working remote just by the size and weight and, and the time they take to eat. But if I'm carrying a flask, if I don't use it, I've still got brew at the end of the day. But, you know, I've got a flask and a spare camelback. I've got something I can lay over the abdomen and get under the kidneys. And I've got really, really life-saving active eat going on at that point. They work, they do the job, they're tried and tested, but as you say, they, they can take a long time to heat up in a cold environment or even at altitude where there's less oxygen, they can take a long time to heat up. Whereas generally in Arctic trips, high altitude trips, we always take a wide mouth Nalgene bottle. Um, so you can heat up your water, put it in the Nalgene, 
slide that in a big Arctic sock so there isn't direct contact with the skin and stick that under the armpits, that would work well. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, and, and that is truly increasing the chances of survival, um, but not increasing the size and weight of the kit you're taking. But it's not depriving you of a system as well if you need it later. So it's a bit of a win-win. So I think it's thinking about concepts. Always have the best kit you can take, but if you do have to compromise, then invoke the concepts to, to give you the best chance. So I think that's what we probably took from the experiments. Incredible. Fantastic. I think... You know, Llewellyn talked about this in the Journal of Wilderness Environmental Medicine, about the symbiotic relationship between wilderness medicine, tactical medicine and operational military medicine and how there is a real crossover. And I, I see that concept applying to this product as well. It really trans, translates well across from the tactical environment to expeditions, to wilderness, to disaster. It's so versatile because of the pack size, the lightweight, and we always have to address these problems, whether it be the victims of an earthquake, crush injuries, amputations that have lost blood, that have been you know, trapped in the cold concrete for a long period of time, immobile. Once we do get them extricated and they've had fluid therapy, we need to potentially ex extract them a long distance. We need to transport them a long distance because the close hospitals are already saturated. So this can apply to disaster medicine as well as, as anything else, which I think leads me on to my next point that I want to discuss with you. I, th I know you've seen the news. Some of our listeners and viewers might have seen the news. In the last few months, there were two unprecedented tropical storms in Guatemala. There was Eta and Lotta, which left devastating floods across a huge part of lowland Guatemala, and thousands of displaced people. Our teams were involved with national teams, international teams, trying to pluck people off treetops and rooftops. Just, we've never seen flooding like it. I was involved in Tropical Storm Agatha back in 2010, trying to take the Land Rover up to its snorkel. We had horses swimming alongside us. Uh, but these latest storms were, were far worse. And what we soon realized was helicopters are great, but there are always more patients than there are resources. Local boats, you know they work but again not enough boats not enough capability so we saw our guys wading up to their chests to go and pick up victims who were immobile who'd been injured the elderly the infirm people who were suffering exacerbation of pre-existing conditions and they were carrying on them carrying patients on their backs slipping around in deep flood water struggling with patients um, and it, so it's a real challenge to get these people to safety. Before we even start the medicine, we need to look at the rescue, moving people from an area of high risk to an area of lower risk. And it sounds like you've cracked a solution to that problem as well. I'm not sure cracked, we have a solution. <laughs> so, uh, no, but you're right. Um, the first problem I ever came across with casualties in water was jungles. And I think anybody that's worked in a tropical forest, you know, our, our, our pathways to anywhere is rivers. Um, but if we, especially in a tactical scenario, if we, if we were cross-graining and when we had to cross the river, if I had a casualty, even with a, um, a twisted ankle, which was something I happened to all the time in, in jungles, sure. I, I'm, I'm putting their life more at risk as I, if I take them across a body of water, um, trying to do it without a piece of equipment. 
Uh, it's it's almost it stops you in, in, in your tracks. Literally, how, how do I get somebody with even moderate um, mobility issues across the water? It didn't have a casualty in Greenland, but we had the same problem as we were coming down off the ice cap with the massive meltwater ponds. Yeah, um, that you know to walk around them is miles, um, and to to have tried to get a casualty across because you know a couple of us broke through the the sludge at the bottom of it. Yeah. To, to, to quite sort of mid thigh level, but to track our cash across it, we we'd be completely stopped. Uh, flooded houses, as we've talked about, yeah. uh, canals in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. There's lots of features everywhere that part of our transportation of the cash equals that we may have to cross water, and obviously that's part of the planning as before we deploy to work out if that features there or not. So what we wanted to design was basically a, a very simple, non-technical floating system. Uh, that that could be toggled onto the extract that would allow you to to basically move someone across water. It isn't designed as a technical rescue system. Uh, that that is another world in its own, and 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 has to be kept that way. It's a technical. You, you know yourself. You need the skills. You need the equipment yes. uh, to the technical rivers or, or any technical water. This is for your flat, calm water. So your your flooded house, uh, your, your canals, uh, your your still your steel rivers, it's about moving someday. If you thought you could walk across it, can we float a casualty across it? And it was basically designed a system that was small and lightweight uh, that you could pop something on. I think I've got one around the corner. Um, if I haven't. Um, it would take a little while to blow this one up. It takes about 15 breaths. But the floating system is actually not too far away from what eventually it looks like, but with two very large buoyancy panels down each side and most of the buoyancy is held at the head so you cannot get the head under. Right. The, the pelvis dips a little bit in the water which was an intentional design to keep your buoyancy uh, down, down very low so your, 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 your capsizing was minimal. Um, if you go to the website there are so many videos of us using this uh, normally somewhere cold in Wales uh, but the idea was to do something small light and very from a water rescue point of view, inexpensive to, to give you that solution. So if water's very feature, you could pack something like that to, to complement you. Secondary uh, uses for that is it's, a, it's the same insulation capacity as, as what we showed you on, on the extract. So it's an insulated mattress. Um, I mean, the other thing we haven't talked about mattresses is pressure care as well. If you've got somebody on a soft air filled mattress, you know, prolonged fuel care, pressure care, it becomes part of your nursing set up as well. So if you've got some, if you've got the heels off the ground uh, and all the sharp points off the ground, then you can use it for your comfort and your pressure care as well. Uh, so it's a bit of multi-use, but yeah, this, this was the, the solution. So if you ever think you've got to cross that feature, it's, it's an interesting one to think about because if you don't have a solution pre-thought out, trying to build something actually increases your, your, your risk quite considerably because it's very hard to improvise a stable platform to move a casualty over water. And if you get it wrong, you drown. And the longer you thinking and designing things, the longer you expose the team to the potential hazards. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know when there's anxiety in a situation as well, you don't tie the knots as good as you should, or you don't quite pick the piece of wood that you need to get across. It's not an exercise. When... It's anxiety driven. I remember um, going back to Greenland again. We, we had, uh, it, it was 
we had one of our team members progressing to quite a dangerous exposure. So we were, we were time driven to do it. And uh, this was a team who had been on the ice camp about 20 days and was very functional. And they started to build the wall and the wall kept falling down because they were rushing. And the same happens because they were anxiety driven. They had built a wall for 20 days. It was no difference, but because it was anxiety driven, the wall kept falling down. And it's that sort of thing when you're in an anxiety driven casualty scenario, you don't quite get it right a lot of the time. Sometimes you do, a lot of the times I don't think you do. I think human factors play a big part in rescue expedition disaster medicine. And we're always going to have this pressure, whether it be because of isolation or separation, or you've got more casualties than resources, or because you're a long way from definitive care. So if we can reduce some of the human factors and simplify the solutions, then it's really going to help us and the, the best possible care for the patient. And, and you know, I think so much so in remote situations, because a lot of the time you're, you're bringing non-medical people in to help you, like in, on the oil platform, you're, you're bringing fire teams in who are non-medical uh, stewards who are my first aiders. Yeah. You can't make their life easy. So if you tell them to blow something up, they can do that. If you tell them to make a raft, they're probably not going to be able to do that. And it's, that's the difference, isn't it? Because the people who are going to help you usually don't have the, the technical skills you know, that, that, that we've built over many years. So you've got to give them simple things that will produce the result for you. And I think you have to think about that when you think about the kit or the procedures that you're, you're trying to deploy at the same time. You know, what could my helper do and do well for me? I think that, that's, that's a big question. Yeah, I agree completely. And most places I've worked like you, we have to train the mountain guides, we have to train the, the roustabouts on the oil rig. You've got to have an extra pair of hands around you for when the wheel comes off. And, even if it's just moving a casualty to the meeting point or the evacuation point or to the vehicle and using a BVM whilst you're managing more technical skills. Yeah, so training is a huge aspect of our role, particularly on remote expeditions or where you might have multiple casualties. That kind of leads me on to another theme I'd like to talk to you about is still on the, the disaster. Looking at the, the Haiti disaster, in, in 2010, the devastating earthquake with hundreds of thousands of deaths and hundreds of thousands of injured and displaced persons. One of the things that, there's lots of literature came out of Haiti, it was a huge learning exercise, incredible worldwide response. We saw that the implementation of point of care ultrasound was used and was useful in triage of patients with internal bleeding. We saw that there was sadly a lot of disaster tourism with ill-prepared healthcare providers landing. They can't speak the language. They don't have the right skills based on the epidemiology they encountered. They weren't self-sufficient. They were drained on the local resources. But one of the things that is cited over and over and over again in the literature is triage and how it helped or hindered the initial sort, sift, treatment, transportation. And I wonder, What's your take on, on triage as a solution for the management of mass casualty incidents a bit close at home in places like the Boston Marathon bombing or the Ariana Grande concert bombing in, in Manchester? How do you think triage can be applied to bring order to the chaos in these yeah. situations? Yeah, no, it's absolutely fascinating. We, we've been steeped in triage for um, about 20, 20 years. Um, I mean, our system is, is used 
in multiple countries throughout the world and national, local, regional systems. Um, and the, one of the good things about that is when something does happen, we, we get to talk to an awful lot of people who's done it and we find out what works and what doesn't work. Um, and we were also incredibly privileged to probably know about four or five people who are very close to the company who have been to over 20 incidents and big complex ones. Yeah. So when you talk to them about things, does triage work? If I did this or did this, would that work? If they say it doesn't work, it doesn't work. <laughs> um, you know, and so that's really interesting and, and slightly going away from the question, with, which I'll come back to. I think it's really important to talk to people, you know, does triage work, doesn't work? You, you get a lot of debriefs who often talk to maybe somebody's experienced um, one incident or two incidents, and that's an experience, but that's not an expert. Yeah. Um, so the, some things will have worked and won't have worked, and we should understand the criteria that worked within. But to really find out what works, you talk to people who have done a you know, the fairly big complex instance 20 plus times, because they've experienced enough different experiences of working, not working, working, not working, to say that if you do that, that will not work. And if you do that, that will sometimes work. And if you do that, that will always work. <laughs> so- um, That's the key, isn't it? In our world, the key word is depends. Every single situation is slightly different, so you want a solution that, that's simple and covers all of the possibilities. Yeah. So, what do I think of triage? Um, if you implement it correctly, um, and it doesn't have to be highly technical, but if you under, in, implement the fundamentals correctly and have a basic understanding of what it is you think you, you're trying to achieve, which is ultimately improving survivability in, in this this level yeah. then it's a cornerstone of what you need um, now it's interesting I, I get to sit in a lot a lot of debriefs in a lot of the, the big incidents to, to hear how things have gone or sometimes not gone bearing in mind most of the times certainly the UK at the moment most of the things we're doing are working and yeah. we've got this horrible thing in the UK of focusing on things that don't work <laughs> but actually when you listen to the debriefs most of the stuff they're doing is pretty good so this is not that this always goes wrong. This goes right a lot. And every now and again, we, we focus on things that aren't as good as they should be. Um, but triage is progressive. So you've got to understand is that the first point that you look in triage, you only want to get a few things out of it. And, and I think sometimes get, people get mixed up in triage. They look at the first look triage as trying to do an awful lot. Yeah. And they ask it to do too much and it will never do that in the scenario. But bearing in mind, after we've had a first look at triage, every time we touch that patient, we're refining the decision. So the first look triage, we've got to get right, because that's the foundation to everything. And, and that can only really do certain things for us. So we go in, there's a complete bunch of unorganized casualties. What the triage is going to do to us is tell us what we've got, how many people they've got, and what's the severity. Because if I'm dealing with a 20-person incident and 19 in 19 of them are only minor injured and one is a serious injury, that's one scenario. If I'm dealing with 20 people and 19 are serious multi-trauma and I've got one minor injured person, that is a national or a regional disaster that I'm dealing with. Yeah. So we need to know that as soon as possible because that information drives resource management because most multiple cash densities are resource depleted at their initial stages. And one way is we can significantly go to saving lives is get the correct resources in the right place as fast as possible. And triage, triage with the correct communication of that decision allows that to happen. So within the first 
I mean, it depends on the incident, but within the first five to 10 minutes, if we can get, I am dealing with this, I have 19 ones, I've got three twos, and I've got seven three, and I've got seven threes. That is something, if somebody's correctly briefed, they can take that piece of information and say, okay, I need three helicopters, I need 12 ambulances, and I need one bus. Yeah. Or I need one bus, and I need one ambulance. So without triage, you can't get that information, or it's very difficult. Yeah. So it's critical that we get that numbers for resourcing. It also directs us to the people who are time critical. And one of the fascinating things I've found with a lot of disaster plans, which are often very good, but very, very few of them look at timing as being a critical resource. They will say, I do this job and I do this job and I do this job, but nobody says how long that job will take. But the patient that's seriously injured has still got the same time that is critical required to get from point of injury to definitive care. Yeah. It doesn't prolong because you're mass casualty. Your physiology doesn't change. So decisions have got to be incredibly time critical. And the people who need those quick decisions are, are the priority one patients who have got trauma, who need to get definitive care, who need to get a surgeon to open them up and put a clamp in place. Yeah. And triage recognizes those people quickly. So if I say, again, I've got my 20 people, but those are the two people that we need to focus all the life-saving resources on. It needs to recognize that quickly. And good triage does that. So it needs to get us number and resources. It needs to focus the resources we have got on the people that need to save our lives. And by the nature of it, that starts the command and control system. So if you look at triage that way, as that's your first hit triage, um, it's critical because if you don't have it, you don't get those vital bits of kit. You'll be 30 minutes into the incident, which is a long time for a seriously injured person. No resources will be mobilized. We'll be inappropriately going to the wrong people and no communications will be moving. So, for long answer to, to a short answer, we absolutely need to get it. Understand the, the criteria as we do a first look triage, but understand we will refine it. But let's get numbers, let's direct to the most seriously injured people. Let's get the resource management sorted out based on the information it's given us. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> it's great to know that in the UK, that, that the machine works, the evidence-based systems are working. Um, more and more they're utilised in urban areas these days, but they're equally transferable to remote areas. And what I particularly like about triage systems in general, and I, I've used yours, is for areas like Guatemala we don't, where we don't have a national health service. We, if there's a disaster, whether it be urban or rural, we have five or six national ambulance services or rescue, ambulance, rescue services. We've got the municipality fire service, we've got the rural fire service, the volunteer fire service, the Red Cross, and 20 or 30 private ambulance companies, various disaster management agencies, so it can be real chaos unless you all focus on a common language and a very simple system. You're absolutely right. And uh, simple terminology. Um, I mean, triage is something is that we have to keep so simple. Um, I have been to various lectures on it and people actually try and make it quite complex. And, and absolutely further down the evacuation chain, it, it will get more clinically focused and, and clinically detailed into exactly what we need. But the initial pit on the ground needs to be simple because it needs that, that initial reaction on the ground to triage has got to drive information. And the fact is, we can't wait half an hour for the experts to turn up. We need to use who we've got. 
And there is a lot of studies showing that non-medical trained people uh, can actually be very effective to get fairly consistent triage uh, results at a primary level. Um, but as long as they can get those results and drive the information, we've got success. And you could argue, how, how do you measure success? And I think this goes back to the planning for the remote medic. Part of your multiple casualty plan, we should be saying, if, I, if, if my multiple casualty incident is going to be a vehicle crash, which happens all over the world, that will give me 67 people. What is, what is an acceptable time from point of injury to definitive care for that person to survive, for that group to survive? And if it's one hour, how am I going to do that? Because if, if you can only work a plan that gives you two hours, they're all dead. Yeah. yeah. So you've actually got to say, what is my acceptable time for the type of injury I think I'm going to experience? What's the most likely thing that's going to happen? If the research tells me I've got an hour, um, that's what I need to do it in. If the research tells me I've got an hour, but if I intervene in a certain way, it buys me another half hour, I've got an hour and a half, but make sure I put that intervention in place. Uh, but work out, go, start, how do you prove success? You prove success by getting people from point of injury to definitive care within an acceptable time, because that's what saves the lives. Yeah. Um, that's a different way to look at a plan, as opposed to I do this and I do this, and I invoke triage, I have command. How does that affect the time? Because the time is what is critical for the patient. If it takes 30 minutes to even start your triage, you're not going to make the time limit, are you? So things have got to start quick with In whatever you've got. There's lots of links, isn't there? Lots of layers of complexity. Everything from the spontaneous responder, the bystander getting involved to different agencies, all the way from pre-hospital care up to the hospital system, which all of a sudden becomes saturated. So the simpler, the better to reduce that pressure and complexity. Yeah, yeah again, if it's simple, think again and make it simpler. Um, it's mm -hmm. something to be drilled in. But I, I like the look at time as a resource in multiple casualty management because that is, that is what actually decides if I, okay, we've got to do all the right things within that time we're evacuating. But if we just take too long, more people die than they should have. Yeah. Um, so what is the time criteria I've got to work in? Once I've worked out my time criteria, now how do I, it's a bit like Apollo 13, you can't go from there to there because you don't have enough kit. Yeah. So you can't get them in an hour and a half unless you do this, this and this, because um, that's the problem you're dealing with. And if you, do, you take two hours, they're dead. So I've got to work, my plan has to work in within a, within a certain time criteria, because that drives survivability. And, and triage is, done correctly buys you time because things turn up quicker than normal correct resources match the casualties and things start to work and triage triage will drive that that's the way i summarize it in training courses having the right resources at the right time and the right quantities at the right place um, so how does how does the smart triage system contribute to simplifying that process um so we've made the kits really simple and functional, which, which is a start point for everything. Um, we pretty much know you talk to enough people who go into these events and you don't have fine water skills, hands will shake. Yeah. Um, and it is one very good story. You talked about the Boston bombing um, earlier on and our kit was used at the Boston bombing. And when I was talking to one of the doctors um, about it at a conference a few years back, I said, how did you get on? They said, yeah, well, it went pretty good. But I couldn't get you a tag inside the holder. 
I thought, well, why not? Because the tag goes on the holder like that. He says, yeah, but your hands don't react like that when you're at these incidents. Um, so we took that and we made the holder about half an inch bigger. So it does go in when your hands are shaking. Interesting. And so first of all, things are got to be simple, they've got to be functional, they've got to be robust. So you can't have bits of paper, you've got to have waterproof paper. Um, you can have pens, you need pencils because pens run out and don't write in the wet. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the simplest things. Yeah. Um, if you're going to accept most multiple casualties happen at night because bad things happen in the dark, you've got to have ways to illuminate your tags because a tag is there to communicate and if it can't communicate in the dark, especially you go to a jungle where it's absolute darkness, you've got no triage system. So you have to, so we've thought of lots of simple practical steps to make sure the kit's functional. And we know, I think there's enough reports come back now that would probably crack that one. The next thing you have to do is you've got to have the right kit embedded at the right time in the right places. So whoever turns up first on scene has got to have the kit. So if you look at London Ambulance, every well, nearly every ambulance in the UK carries one of our triage kits. Uh, if you look at the British Army, uh, if one in four soldiers will carry a triage kit. If you look at the Finnish Army, every soldier carries a triage tag. Yeah. So as soon as the incident happens, the kit is available. Um, the next step that we took was we, we modulized it. So there was kit for people first on scene. There was then a different piece of equipment for the first manager on scene so they could complement the information coming back from the initial equipment. And then there was kits built for like you know, your stadium incidents and things like that. And, and that was enveloped with a, with, a, with a training system behind it as well uh, that, that you, can do, you can do remotely. Because best kit in the world, you're still going to have the, the right training. Um, so there's always going to be accessibility to training. But I think good kit in the right place with the right people with the right training. We, we took that concept and we applied it. Instead of just having a big kit, we, we thought about how's it actually going to work. And going back to a lot of the concepts we've done with Heatsaver and that simple, functional, but then looking at the process that, that we need to go through. We carry your kits on our ambulances here as well in Guatemala. Uh, and I've had the training box, the triage training kit for years. I use it on EMT courses and just Fantastic. incredible, you know, whether you do an audiovisual audio presentation with a CD or you just choose to use the, uh, the inserts and the, the scenario-based cards, it's a fantastic, you can train somebody in triage in about 10 minutes. It's all so simple and visual with the walkproof flow charts. The, the training kit's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it took a bit of time, but you know, I think it goes back to how we operate as medics remotely. It's the detail that matters. So that, that reflects on what we do with our innovations. It's detail, detail all, all the time. Absolutely. Fantastic. So what specific products do you, do you have on the market at the moment to support triage? Sorry, I just missed that, Chris. Can you say that again, please? What specific products do you have available at the moment to support triage? Yeah, there's a whole group of them. Um, and again, the website's got you, you'll see the whole group of them. But I mean, the, the most basic part is that there's a smart tag, which is a triage tag. Yeah. Um, there's various other tags set off that as now. There's uninjured tags, there's CBRNE tags that, that, that complement the tag, but the, the core is the smart tag itself. Yeah. Uh, we have kits that are designed for what we call the dismounted medic. You know, medics who carry things on their backs and their backs. 
Uh, we, have, we have small kits that, that can fit within anybody's med kit. And then there's kits that are designed for vehicles. Um, we, we've updated them recently. So every triage kit now comes with space to put rapid interventions because you know there's no point putting a red tag on someone moving on and they bleed out on us. So a lot of the kits now are tied in with uh, you know simple triage and rapid interventions. And then you, so kit for frontline vehicles. And then we also have uh, very simple command modules for the first manager on scene. Because if you think of the information they have to consolidate very quickly, uh, we've got really simple functional command board systems or yeah. command folders that allow them to bring the right information to the scene, but consolidate the information that's coming in so they can communicate effectively. Uh, and, and that's really the, that, that's, I mean, there's various modules hang off that allow those things to happen, but kit for first on scene, kit for first commanders, that, that tends to be what the system revolves, revolves around. And it's very simple and, and all that's available on the website, isn't it? And, and LinkedIn, et cetera. Well, we could talk about this forever. There's so many different ideas that integrate and cross over. I'm looking forward to your next products, albeit I haven't got my hands on the latest ones, but hopefully we're going to see each other in February next year when we run our polar medicine and expedition preparation course in Norway. And we'll be trialing all these products as well and maybe set up a new study. But uh, I'm excited about that. Put some of your Greenland training to good use. Okay, sounds good to me. <laughs> Perfect. So thank you, um, Colin. I literally could talk to you all morning, but I know we've both got other things to do. So thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for the insight into you know, the, the passion and how things developed and, and why and, and, and what you developed and how they fit into our specific environment of rescue, expedition, disaster medicine, wilderness, tactical, just some fascinating products. Um, obviously, as a declaration, we're providers of your products. Um, there's potential for bias there, but there's independent studies that have been done. And you've just seen the demonstrations by Colin that shows all the simple components and how effective they are um, for all of our environments. So check out the videos, check out the concepts, check out how practical, lightweight and compact they are. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to promote at the moment, Colin, any upcoming events? Uh, no, I think I think we've probably covered most things. Um, the, there is a lot of resource on the website, and uh, we've tried to make the website as, as educational as possible. Uh, bearing in mind it's, it's got to have a commercial slant to it as well, but there, there is a lot of information on there. Uh, one of the latest things we've done, which has been a fascinating project, is, is working out how we could put a system in place to manage hospital evacuation, um, which is, was an interesting one to challenge, but I think we've cracked it. And it's and that sense certainly starting to take off in the UK now as, as a stand, not maybe not standard yet, but there are hospitals starting to come on board looking at the way we've said could be successful to evacuate in a hospital. So if anybody's interested in that, because that, that's an area that's often put in the too difficult to do. Um, we again we've we've sort of applied the same principles of breaking things down into into manageable chunks and then putting bits of kit that people can function with. At the appropriate level so if anybody's interested in that that's it as a subject it's fascinating to talk about um i am certainly in the last two years we've evacuated well i haven't personally but staff in guatemala have evacuated hospitals three times to my knowledge once because of a, a tremor a minor earthquake once during the, the start of the pandemic because of a flood during a tropical storm 
and then a third time because of an active shooter, um, a gunman running through the hospital. So at least three times in my memory that hospitals have been evacuated in Guatemala, and I don't believe there's a system in place to expedite that. Well, what we can do from, from an interest point of view, Chris, we're, we're due to train some of our hospitals virtually, uh, which is another learning curve, uh, probably in the next month or so. So I can invite you into one of those training sessions and, and, okay. and show you, because it's very concept that we're talking and, and how to use it as opposed to what it is. So, yeah, I can, I can let you know that's available and, and you can get up to speed on that one. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's brilliant. Really, really appreciate it. So where can, where can people find you and TSG and the products? Have you got any, any links to your social media, etc.? Yes, um, obviously the website's uh, a massive resource for us, but the, the main social media platform we use is LinkedIn. Um, so if you go to our TSG Associates page on LinkedIn, we are posting there weekly. Um, and that, that tends to be the main one we want. Obviously we've got the YouTube site with the videos, but I think between the website and LinkedIn is where you'll probably find most of our, our, our company activity. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I know there's some good videos on there to inspire and explain the products. Fantastic. Well, we're also at SOS, we're a, a supplier or distributor of your products throughout Latin America. If people want to get in touch, they can find us at www.sosmedicalservices.org. And we've also got links to the videos on the RedMed website, redmed.education. Um, and then we're on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook at Rescue Expedition Disaster Medicine. If you've got any questions at all, please feel free to go direct to Colin at TSG, or you can come to us at SOS or RedMed, and we'll be happy to either answer the questions or supply the equipment or, or pass you on to, to Colin and James over at TSG. Uh, Chris, I'd just like, sorry, I'd just like to say thank you, Chris, for your, for your time this afternoon. I think when, when us two get chatting, it becomes infe infectious enthusiasm for, for the subject. Uh, but it, it, it's always fantastic to talk to you and, and, and get your enthusiasm and forethought on what's going on. Uh, as always, it's been wonderful to talk to you. And, and I really, really uh, appreciate the time you, you've given us to, to allow you on your podcast, which, which I know is highly respected. So it's, it's a real compliment. For, for us to be allowed on it so so that, thank you very much that's a real pleasure and you're very welcome colin thank you just before we go uh, have you got any final words for anybody that's working in or aspiring to join rescue expedition or disaster response teams any top tip you know i, I thought about that and you know um i thought the best answer for that is um just make sure you're doing it for the right reasons um because a lot of people who want to do this come from a first world medicine point of view. And, and if we're taking our medicine, especially in things like disaster relief to the second and third world, we, we've got to make sure that we're not doing it for us, but we're doing it for the communities that we're, we're basically going, going there to serve. Yeah. So we've got to make sure that the medicine that we're taking is appropriate. And I often see that we'll put rescue teams in places and what they can achieve is great, but it won't improve survivability. Um, so I think a really important thing for anybody, especially in, in, the, in the international aid and, and initial disaster response, is, is just, just do a check why you want to do it and make sure that the first, I suppose the first answer to that is that I need to do it to, to enhance the community I'm going to serve. And it's not for my own, and, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but 
yes, we want to get the experiences and, and the adrenaline rush and, and, and the feel good that goes with it, but make sure over and above that, that you're doing it for the community you're going to serve yeah. and, and make sure that fit is correct. And I think that's really important, uh, especially, you know, we do come out an awful lot of time from first world bubble, but sometimes that medicine doesn't always fit and we've just got to check and balance that it does fit. And, and that'd be the thing of all the things I'd say is just make sure you go there and do the right job for the community that, that you're going to serve. Superb. I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm really, really passionate about that. Thank you, Colin. But as we mentioned, a lot of evidence came out of Haiti that there was a lot of disaster tourism groups, teams going in ill-prepared. A lot of recommendations came out of that in the literature to improve training and communication. And it's something we emphasize in the Red Med book and here in Guatemala during our medical missions that you really need to come with the right skills, whether it be language skills, you need to be self-sufficient, have water supply, food for 10 days, your own shelter, the right medicines for the epidemiology that you're going to encounter, know how to use the equipment, think about cultural competence, so you're not going to become a drain on the resources for the affected population. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm extremely, I agree with that. I'm very passionate about that. And one of the things we do now is we sell Guatemalan coffee, gourmet Guatemalan coffee through our UK website. And all of the proceeds comes back to Guatemala, not only to help with sustainable farming, but all of the proceeds go into our SOS medical missions. So we go into remote rural communities that maybe haven't seen doctors or, or can't afford to go to the doctors or the hospitals. And we take specialist healthcare professionals, whether it be paramedics, nurses, physicians, allied healthcare professionals. Sometimes we go in by four by four, sometimes we raft through the jungle, but we take specialist knowledge tailored to the epidemiology and the statistics that we've gathered prior to that. And we take everything from point of care testing to primary care equipment, emergency equipment, education training programs uh, and really try and make a difference uh, and it's not just going in once and sticking a, a sticking plaster over the wound it's really analyzing what the needs are and looking at a, a sustainable solution so there's two things come out from that you can buy the sos coffee through the website in the uk now um, and also if anybody's interested after the pandemic and travel restrictions are lifted if you want to come out and volunteer and join us you're more than welcome I'll certainly back the coffee up. I've sampled it, and I like my coffee, and it's good coffee. So, uh, absolutely, fantastic. Uh, you know, that's such a honestly, that's such a wonderful venture, and, and you should be duly proud of it as well, uh, because it, it's working at all the right levels to do, you know, enhance care to vulnerable people, and, and that that's so commendable. So, yeah, Thank fantastic. You. Thank you, Colin. Thanks for supporting us. Every cup helps, as they say. Much appreciated. Absolute pleasure, Colin. All the best, and thank you for your time. Likewise, Chris Andre. I'm, I'm no, no doubt we will talk soon. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Take care. Stay safe.